Good. So, good evening. Welcome. So, as in everything in life, we, we lose some and we gain, gain some. So, some left, some left this afternoon and some have arrived new. So, welcome. Um, we've been taking our time to go through this great narrative of the passion of Jesus, exploring what it tells us and illuminates about the human condition. And we've reached the point of the trial. Tomorrow we'll look at the, uh, we'll go back a step in the sequence and look at the uh, Last Supper, because tomorrow is the beginning of the Triduum, the three days of, of Easter, and um, begins with the celebration of the memorial of the Last Supper. Um, but we've reached the point in the story where Jesus is taken to trial, and we've seen the beginning of a contemplative dimension in the story. Perhaps we've seen that already in Gethsemane, but it deepens uh, very powerfully in the silence of Jesus, when Jesus uh, gives no reply to the accusations, the false and bigoted, unjust accusations being thrown at him. So this is here where we really begin to enter into the, the deeper interiority of the story and of Jesus himself. What is unique about the story is that we see it from the point of view of the victim. Uh, a very helpful interpretation, or one interpretation of the, of the idea of um, the passion and the death of Jesus is that it exposes, definitively exposes a, uh, a human trait, a cultural trait of, scape, of the scapegoat, the innocent chosen as the um, the person who's going to take the blame for the, uh, for the people. And this happens in every human group, in every kind of human organization, or can happen unless it's very carefully avoided. And very often, even politically, it's encouraged. We pick on a defenseless uh, group within society uh, and we blame them for all the things that are going wrong with us, even though these things were going wrong even before they came, probably. Nevertheless, they're a convenient uh, way of projecting our anxieties or our conflicts, and sometimes also a way of bringing about a temporary peace between warring parties. You just find a common enemy for a while, and everybody agrees on beating them up. But it doesn't last. And uh, anthropologically, uh, René Girard and others have, set, have shown that these innocent victims who are blamed for all the problems that are created then become uh, divinized, often divinized, because they're seen to be the, the person who brought about the peace. So for a while, they're a victim, the guilty party. Then they can become the supernatural uh, deity that brought about a healing and a, a, at least a temporary peace. So this is a, 
This is something we can see in literature, we see it in politics, we see it throughout the history of human organizations. And if we look carefully, we probably see it in our own families and our own parishes as well. So, so there's nothing unusual about this. What is unusual in Jesus as the scapegoat is that we see it happening from the inside. We see it from the point of view of the victim. And it's quite obvious what is happening. So the silence of Jesus, I think, is what allows us to enter into the deeper meaning of it and to understand what it is, why it is redemptive, why what is happening and the way what is happening is being taught, communicated, why this is salvific, what it, why it is liberating for us to engage with this story, what it, what it exposes, what it reveals, and the transcendent dimension that it opens up. So this continues in the next scene of the trial where Jesus is brought before Pilate. So he's been tried and found guilty by the religious authorities. And this is quite a, an exposure of the tendency of religious institutions to become corrupt, to be, be hypocritical, with no shortage of examples of that throughout history or in our own time. And for many people today, the exposure of corruption or hypocrisy within religious institutions um, has led them to reject all religious affiliation, to reject the church, for example, in, in, many, in many cases. So in a way, there's nothing so unusual, again, about this, except the fact that we see it so clearly. And whether this means that we should reject all religion is another matter. Or does it mean that we should engage with religion from a contemplative perspective? Jesus here is the contemplative center of the story. The silence of Jesus in the middle of all of this false trial and uh, hypocrisy and cruelty and abuse. He is the the, 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 the simple and still center of consciousness through it all. So maybe it's not uh, the conclusion we might draw from this and what flows from it is not simply that all religion is corrupt, throw it all out. We can't do that, in fact. We've tried to do that in the 20th century uh, in, on at least three major occasions of different revolutions great cultural revolutions in China, in Russia, and Germany, uh, and even with, even with the revolution of materialism and in capitalism, in consumerism, and we've, we, we, can't, we can't escape religion. Religion, religious language, religious symbolism, the religious instinct is really, I think, as innate as art or music. What we have to do is to be clear-minded about the kind of religion we are uh, cultivating. And a religion without this contemplative center 
easily falls into that kind of, of um, corruption and, uh, and, and counter-witness. It witnesses against the very thing that it is supposed to be proclaiming. So uh, this is another paradox or another, another tension within the story uh, as it takes us deeper into the fundamental elements of, of what it is to be human and what it is to be in community. We can't do without religion, but we have to find out how we can cope with its tendency to corruption. So, Peter, so, uh, so we've seen Peter's denial, uh, for which he sheds his tears. We've seen uh, the trial in, in front of the high priest and the lawyers, and the accusation and the condemnation. And then he comes to Pilate. And in Mark's Gospel, which we're reading primarily, we um, have a very short account, it's longer in the other Gospels, uh, of his interaction with Pilate, the Roman governor. Um, when, so this is the next morning. When morning came, the chief priests, having made their plan with the elders and lawyers and all the council, so the full, the full structure of power here gathered against the individual. This is the Kafkaesque uh, element in the, the nightmare element in the story. Uh, he, he hasn't got a chance. It's everything targeted against the, the scapegoat, the innocent individual. So then they put Jesus in chains, rather unnecessary, one might think, to put him in chains, but this makes the point. Then they led him away and handed him over to Pilate. They had to do this to fulfill the, the protocol and the, 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 the legal process. And Pilate, again a very brief uh, summary of the encounter, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, the words are yours. And then the chief priests brought many charges against him. Pilate questioned him again, have you nothing to say in your defense? See how many charges they are bringing against you. But to Pilate's astonishment, Jesus made no further reply. So this is not, he hasn't withdrawn entirely from the process. He's not in a sort of traumatic uh, uh, withdrawal. Uh, he responds to Pilate's first question, saying, well, if, if that's what you say, that's how you put it. Um, Pilate's trying to make a political point about it. Jesus doesn't get drawn into that language, into the trick questions. And, but when he's asked how he responds to all these false charges, he makes no reply. Again, we, we, we see him occupying this, the center of the scene in a 
conscious, powerful silence. Pilate, the consummate politician, is astonished at the power of this silence. Clearly, Jesus is not terrified. He's not cringing. He's not spe speechless. He's not unintelligent. But he's silent. And then <clears throat> there's a, um, uh, a scene where the, the, the governor used to release one prisoner at the people's request. As it happened, the man known as Barabbas was then in custody with the rebels who had committed murder in the Rising. So we get a little glimpse into the social context here. There'd been a Rising recently, so the atmosphere was very charged. People were very nervous. So there was, the political situation was very fragile. And so the crowd comes asking for this usual favor. And Pilate seems to, again, as in this and in other accounts, seems to want to, to release Jesus, sensing he's just a scapegoat of the, of the high priest's uh, machinations and, and a rather unusual person, not a political danger. And so he tries to use this traditional custom to get the crowd to release Jesus because he knew it was out of spite that they had brought Jesus before him. But the chief priests incited the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas rather than Jesus. And Pilate says, well, what shall I do with this man that you call king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him. Pilate again comes back. Why? What harm has he done? He's just preaching love of neighbor. That's, that's going to be no big political danger. Nobody's going to listen to him anyway. So why this man who's just preaching about the kingdom of God, what harm has he done? Pilate asked, then they shouted all the louder, crucify him. So Pilate, in his desire to satisfy the mob, released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged, incidentally, and handed him over to be crucified. So the, the, um, the, the whole system of power here, the political power, has engaged the voice of the mob, and the mob is dangerous even to people in power, even to Pilate. His, his, Romans were very aware that the mob could, could suddenly turn on the people who were manipulating them. So to satisfy the mob, he handed Jesus over. Straightforward political decision. This was no particularly important indiv individual. And uh, rather than risk antagonizing the, the mob, he handed Jesus over to them. And then the soldiers took him inside the courtyard, the governor's headquarters, and called together the whole company. They dressed him in purple, and having plated a crown of thorns, placed it on his head. 
Then they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They beat him about the head with a cane and spat upon him and knelt and paid mock homage to him. When they had finished their mockery, they stripped him of the purple and dressed him in his own clothes. Now, we were looking the other day about the, the tendency to focus too much upon the physical anguish, the physical suffering uh, in the passion. Clearly, there was a lot. But I think what we see here is not a, not a, a fixation upon the physical pain, but upon the inversion of the right order of things. There's a perversion here of the right order of things. So we, we've seen what community is, the community of the Last Supper, even though it wasn't perfect. It, it was a community. And, but here we see the mob. The mob is in power. The community has been de, 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 scattered. The disciples have run away. And what's left, just the chaos and the visceral, uh, unpredictable uh, energy of the crowd, of the mob. And when we say that meditation creates community, we could also say that meditation pulls us out of the crowd. You can't be in the crowd and in community at the same time. And the values that we learn and live by in, the, in community are in fundamental contradiction to the values that we live by for or controlled by in the crowd, in the mob. Uh, it, and in a way, when we speak about the mob, we're not only perhaps talking about the football crowd, you know, that goes on a rampage, or a crowd of drunken people running around, uh, looting. Or, <clears throat> but we're also, we're also talking about the, a culture in which we live, um, we live on the surface, we live with short, term short-lived responses to stimuli as we do in a consumer society. Consumer society is very much a manifestation of the mob in a less physically violent way. But it has many of the qualities of, of the crowd, of the mob. We lose our individuality in it, even though we become as consumers, if we identify ourselves only with what we consume, we're pretty much like anybody else. We're simply a statistic. We're buying the same things, looking for the same bargains, uh, using our leisure time to, to go shopping. And it's the number one leisure activity in the United States. So, so the, the, the mob here, it seems to me, is, is set in very sharp contrast to the, 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 
existence and the value of community as we've already seen it, not perfect, but genuine. And clearly at this moment, chaos is unfolding in the story. The normal, the right order of things has been uh, upset and it's reflected in the mockery that we see Jesus subjected to. So Jesus is mocked uh, as if he were, you know, as if he were pretending to be a king or a leader. They dress him in purple and uh, take pleasure in mocking him. He is the leader. He is the, the, the very person who could lead us out of this chaos into the order of community, the order of love. Um, but he is disempowered, disabled from, from doing that by, <clears throat> by the system, by the crowd. So everything has been turned upside down, as happens in periods of our lives, as happens in times of war. You know, when we see the um, horrible scenes of, of, of Syrian towns after they've been liberated, bombed to total destruction, when we hear the reports of the people who've been living in cellars in, <coughs> in bombed-out houses for, for weeks, you know, we only see a tiny bit of the surface, but imagine how much of that life how much of life remains, almost nothing of any order or harmony or nothing of what would allow children to grow up in a uh, loving, normal, healthy environment. So the chaos that is being, is being described here is part of our present human condition whenever we lose touch with the... Um, with that center of contemplation, which Jesus continues to hold and represent, even at this moment of um, the story, when everything seems to be, or is falling, falling apart. Um, everything has become a mirror image of itself. So I think we, we should come back to this question of the silence of Jesus as we reflect on the meaning of the story. It's the silence of Jesus that exposes the real meaning of what is happening around him. If he were just to accuse and defend himself and attack those who were attacking him, uh, it would be more difficult to see. But it's his own stillness and silence in the midst of this chaos that throws up in very sharp, dramatic relief the real meaning of what is happening, the real tragedy of, of what is happening. So it reminds us too that you know, silence is essential for our health, and for human environment. We looked earlier today at the different kinds of silence, the negative silence, uh, 
with the silence of withdrawal or rejection. Um, as opposed to the silence of communion, the silence of truth. In another gospel account, Pilate appropriately asks Jesus, what is truth? Jesus says he has come to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate seems to scorn, scorn that or sneer at that and asks this dismissive question, well, what is truth? Truth is whatever you want it to be. Fake news, you know, just keep denying something long enough and people will believe it's not true. Keep saying something false often enough and they will believe it is true. So truth is something you can manipulate and create, you know. So the contemplative silence of Jesus is an affirmation of the real nature of truth. We are very often frightened of silence, the real silence. And religious institutions have traditionally been frightened by silence, by the, their own contemplative teachers or contemplative um, dimension. And we see that, I think, in, in many religious traditions historically. In our own Christian tradition, we see a tension, age-old tension, uh, between the contemplative and the hierarchical aspects or institutional aspects of Christianity. Despite the fact that in the gospel itself, Jesus clearly gives an affirmation to the priority of contemplation. When he tells Mary that or says that Mary has chosen the better part. Mary, the symbol of contemplation, is not, is not put on a pedestal. Um, we don't know how deeply attentive or silent she was in that particular scene, but she symbolizes the, uh, the fact that being comes before doing, that we have to remain close to the ground of our being, the personal ground of our being. And if we don't, if we become disconnected from it, as Martha did in her hyperactivity and her distractedness, then the quality of our action and even the quality of our thought and perception suffers. It becomes distorted. We need this tension. They are like the two hemispheres of the brain. Uh, we need both of them. They need to work together. We need to integrate them. But there is a world of difference between them and in the way they see the world and pay attention. And reality, in this sense, is what we pay attention to. The world we make, whether it's the world of a community, built upon the values of justice, equality, compassion, or the world of a mob that is out of control, um, or a product of its own addiction, uh, that is going to depend. The kind of world we have is going to depend upon 
the, 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 the quality of attention that we are used to exercising in all of the activities of our lives, in all of the work. In our community, we have for some years now been um, pursuing uh, outreach um, into secular society, bringing meditation as a spiritual practice, but without religious language, um, into places where we've been invited to bring fruits of meditation. Um, and what we've been able to see over these years is the great hunger there is in our world for this kind of attention, for this quality of consciousness. And it's, it may even be a stronger uh, demand or a stronger hunger than it is in religious circles. You know? If we look at, for example, the, um, the, the difficulty sometimes, not always, and I think it's getting better, much better than it was a few, some years ago, but the resistance uh, within uh, uh, churches to this contemplative dimension of the gospel. That's all it is. It's not some newfangled uh, technique. This is, this is uh, uh, an ancient tradition of prayer corresponding to the teaching of Jesus on prayer. But how difficult it is sometimes to get that through the institutional structure and framework and mentality. And it's, it, the reason for it, I think, is simply that not enough of the leaders of the churches have learned or have been trained to develop this kind of attention. They simply, let's say, they simply weren't introduced to the practice of contemplation. They were perhaps taught it as a subject for, for a short, for a course or two. Um, but the way they were trained was very deficient in this essential balancing aspect of religious experience and, uh, and worship and prayer. So this is a, a kind of irony of the modern world is that whereas the religious people, churches especially, are often confused and sad because they seem to be losing touch with the world and with young people especially. But the world and young people especially are on a spiritual search. And their spiritual search is focused more and more out of necessity on this contemplative dimension. They're looking for interiority. And they're even looking for a discipline of interiority, for a way of personal experience. So, um, so we have to be prepared to see that there is a fear of silence in institutions and clearly in this story as we, of the trial, we see how opposed the silence of Jesus is to the, the false uh, communications, the fake, 
whatever it is, fake news of the, um, of the institution. And how much of a contrast there is between the silence of Jesus and the baying of the mob. If we think of silence in negative terms, in other words, what we don't say, what we're frightened to say, what we sweep under the carpet, false silence, this is very often the false silence of institutions, whether it's big corporations that are trying to keep their, their uh, crimes undercover, or the false silence of the, of the churches that don't admit to their mistakes or crimes. Um, if we think of silence in these negative terms, we fail to understand how powerful true silence, the silence we see in Jesus here, can be in confronting and ultimately overcoming the mob and the corruption of power. In other words, what a powerful force contemplation is to correct the imbalance that we find everywhere in the world. The usefulness of meditation, let's say. And to, to understand that, we have to understand that silence is not just uh, a limited response to a particular question, that silence is a work. It's a work that is carried out in us over a period of time. It becomes part of our life, as do the periods of meditation. And when we weave and allow this work of silence to become woven into part of our life, then our whole life begins to take on a new quality, a new quality of attention, a new quality of consciousness. We see the world differently, and therefore we respond to the world differently. And the true contemplative, once that work of silence is deeply enough established in them, will become a truthful person. Will become someone who can speak the truth in love uh, and speak the truth to power, even when that involves confrontation and, and danger. From our personal point of view, this work of silence leads us to self-discovery. And that is never as easy or as immediately self-fulfilling as we think it's going to be. Everybody's keen to discover themselves. And they'll do all sorts of things to discover themselves. And sometimes we, we have to do some strange things and make some strange mistakes in order to find out who we are. But the work of silence allows this self-discovery to take place <clears throat> 
um, through self-knowledge. One of the signs that this is happening, that we are doing this work of silence genuinely, authentically, and that self-knowledge is beginning to stir and grow in us, is the fact that we stop blaming other people for getting in our way. We stop blaming other people for preventing us from being ourselves or discovering ourselves. And we begin to see that other people, even when they are a pain in the neck, are vital to us. We sort of imagine sometimes that solitude would mean um, that we would be able to pursue our journey of self-knowledge and self-discovery uh, unimpeded by all the irritants of uh, living with people who are much, much less perfect than we are. <laughs> But actually, we need their very imperfections. And this is the problem. This is, the Tibetans say, uh, your enemies are your best spiritual friends. The people you get on with, I mean, that's nice, that's great, you know, you can learn from them, but they don't really push you into something new. They don't push you over the edge. Whereas, this, I mean, we certainly need people we get on with. We don't want to be just with people we find irritating, but the people who we do find difficult, we need to see as blessings in our lives. And it's a wonderful thing in community where you, when you uh, are witnessing a, a, a conflict and you think this is going to lead to somebody pulling out, somebody leaving, and, uh, or just to continue the conflict. And then one of, the, one of the people will say privately, you know, I really thought deeply about this, uh, about this other person, and um, I've realized that, you know, we can't, we can't change them. There's only one thing we can do, and that's love them. I mean, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing to hear. And that makes it all worthwhile, actually, when you hear somebody has made that fundamental breakthrough. And, and then immediately you see that the person who has made that breakthrough has understood that you have to love, do the best you can to love, which means to pay attention to the person who is still going to be irritating to you, um, that person now has a lightness about them and a depth and a joyfulness about them which they didn't have before. Before they were dark, they were conflicted, they were judgmental and they were irritable themselves. And now they've broken through, they've broken out of that into this contemplative consciousness. And in a way, they look upon their enemies or the people who are irritating them in the same kind of way that Jesus looks upon those who are, in this account, um, treating him so badly. 
It's a matter of attention. It's a matter of how we see. And you can't argue somebody into that. You can't convince them. They have to break through to that perception uh, themselves. But when they do, we see the meaning of the story. So, in order to do that, we have to come to self-knowledge. And other people bring us to self-knowledge. This is very clear in the desert, Father's literature and the stories of the desert. St. Anthony of the desert, one of his sayings, famous sayings is, whether alone or with others, your life and your death are with your neighbor. Whether alone or with others, your life and your death are with your neighbor. What do you think that means? Whether alone or with others, your life and your death are with your neighbor. Okay, you can't experience life without other people. In, in, in fullness, in a, in a, in a full yes. You might exist for a while. Yes, you sort of coexist. Babies die if you don't have relationships. Yes. Mm. That you have an effect on your neighbor even if you don't realize it. Yes, that's good. Yes. We are, we, even if there may not be a deliberate uh, effort to affect, to influence other people, but just by the way you are, you have an influence. Sometimes your biggest influence is unintentional, either for good or for ill, actually. When you've grown through the relationships, good and bad, Yes. You feel like you've worked it all out. And then it's not only when you come in contact with others, all sorts of people, and you see how you respond in that. Yes. That you're in. Yeah. Thank you. So it's life and death. This is, are we living or are we half living? Or are we maybe even dying? Sometimes people feel their life is, has lost, you know, they, they, they feel deeply dissatisfied with the way they're living. They feel they're not getting anywhere. They can feel themselves drifting into depression or into meaninglessness or into just a lot of activity but without any purpose. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, you know, heading towards a kind of spiritual death. So, um, our, the contemplative life is not a life of inaction, it's a life of pure action. It's not a life of isolation, it's a life where you live with the paradox of solitude and communi community. And at times you have to do battle with the crowd, you know, the crowd in your own mind, your own thoughts, your own drives, your own compulsions, as well as the crowd culture um, around you. People, when they start 
to meditate regularly will find that they are becoming more contemplative in other ways, not just the fact that they are seen as the rather strange people in the, in the house who disappear uh, twice a day to meditate, um, even though the rest of the family usually approve of it because they're easier to live with. But, uh, but they, will, they will find that their attitude to, other, to everything in their life begins to, to shift. Everything needs to come back into alignment with the principal value uh, that you have discovered in the silence. So the way you spend your time, the way you decide to do your holidays, the way you do your work, the way you spend your, your money, all of these things then need to become calibrated uh, on this central value that is becoming <coughs> um, uh, visible and luminous uh, in your lives. So, 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 so silence, we've been led into all of this discussion through reflecting on the silence of Jesus in the midst of the storm that is going on around him. So silence is a work, a work that we do uh, continuously in our life. In doing this work, we find that we are entering into what is becoming clear in this story to be a central, the central theme of the story, which is the Greek word for it is kenosis or self-emptying. Kenosis is emptying or self-giving. And tomorrow we'll, we'll look at this uh, a little more when we, when we step back and look at the, the Eucharist, which is the giving of himself to us in this, in this uh, ritual and in that moment. So we're just, just for now, let's we'll just conclude with a reflection on that work of silence that we do in meditation on a, on a daily basis. By saying the mantra, we are giving ourselves, we're emptying ourselves by this very simple, radically simple, not easy, radically simple work of shifting the attention off ourselves. And the only way we can do that effectively on a systematic basis is to take the attention off our thoughts, to let go of our attachments, to step back from our fantasy, our imagination. Without doing harm or damage to ourselves, we nevertheless practice this radical detachment, this radical poverty of spirit. And it's this which takes us through the narrow gate that leads to life. It's narrow in the sense that whenever we pay attention to one thing, and that is what love is, 
we are, we, are, we are focusing our whole being at that moment on that one point of attention. And it's the generosity. This isn't so much a work of effort and force and doing violence to ourselves. It is a work, but it's a good work, a delightful work, like somebody who wants to learn to play the guitar is going to practice and they will enjoy the practice because they'll begin to see that they're becoming you know, a little better at playing the guitar. Um, so it's, it's that kind of work, creative work, the art of prayer that uh, absorbs us. But we come nevertheless to see it as a, a, as a kind of absolute work too. Because the work that we're doing in the mantra on a daily basis at this ever deepening level of our own being triggers, sets up a ripple effect so that the same quality of, of other-centeredness begins to appear in other, all other aspects of our lives. The way we relate to others, the way we serve others, the way we deal with conflict and, and so on. Good. So let's take uh, a couple of minutes now to uh, prepare for meditation. And we'll listen to a little reading from the Upanishads uh, beforehand. 